doing the work of cultural apologetics. You're listening to Cresta in the afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, uh, Carl Truman, is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He's an esteemed church historian, previously served as the William E. Simon Fellow in Religion and Public Life at Princeton University. He's authored or edited more than a dozen books. Today, we look at his most recent contribution uh, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl, good to have you with me. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Let's begin with this idea of the self that you're focusing on here. Uh, the concept of the self is, is both, it can be very abstract, uh, it's also, of course, deeply personal and concrete. Uh, everybody asks the question, who am I? Um, many people wonder, though, if that is a self that can be discovered, or do we have to invent by sheer acts of will? this idea of ourselves. Where do you begin in this conversation? Yeah, I think in some ways you put your finger on, on what is a central theme of my book. Of course, when I use the word self, I'm, I'm really meaning you know, how we think of, of our identity at its most basic level. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is the issue, particularly in Western culture over the last three, four hundred years, is we've moved from a position where where selfhood was, as, as you put it, discovered, where we were born into a world that, that already had meaning external to ourselves and where we had to, to locate ourselves in relation to that meaning, to one where we are certainly taught, really, from a very early age now, that that the self, the, our identity, is something that we have to we have to create for ourselves. It's an act of will, if you like, not an act of discovery. Uh, and I would say that the the shift from the former to the latter of those is really one of the most significant stories in in Western culture in the last three four hundred years. Is this primarily a work of intellectual history, or is this a work of social history and cultural history? It's well, my book is is more intellectual history, but the story itself, of course, is both. On mm-hmm. the one hand, you have influential thinkers. Uh, we, I start with Rousseau and, and move on down through Nietzsche, Marx, Freud to, to the present day. So there's an intellectual genealogy. But, of course, ideas only become plausible and then compelling when there is a, a broader cultural story to be told as well. I mean, if you think of the transgender question we now face, mm-hmm. uh, transgenderism can only be plausible in a world where we have the technology that at least allows us to think that we can manipulate our bodies in such a way as to to transform our gender. So there's both an intellectual and a cultural, technological dimension to this story. Where do you, this idea of kind of reimagining the self, uh, as you put it, where where does that begin uh, intellectually, or at least in Western thought? Where do you see it? Well, so, you know, one could go right back to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the question of the starting point is always the historian's nightmare, because wherever you start, <laughs> there's always a story before the start. But I would say it, it starts to gain real head of steam in the 18th century with a figure like Rousseau and then, and then the Romantics. Clearly, it has antecedents. We could look at... Uh, uh, late medieval movements. We could look at the Reformation. We could look at Descartes and the early Enlightenment. But in terms of the idea gaining popular currency, I really think that Rousseau and then the Romantics who pick up his 
his program of seeing the identity as a, as a kind of inner monologue and turn that into attractive cultural productions that shape the popular imagination. I really think the story begins, begins there. Rousseau and the Romantics is where I would say the, the story gains momentum, if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, a question which is often brought up uh, in American political discussion is whether, in fact, the founders of, the, uh, uh, of America themselves thought that there was a stable self uh, that they were creating uh, a, a political framework for that self to work in, or did they were they uh, as 18th century figures um, influenced by somebody like Rousseau? Well, I certainly think they're influenced by their time. But I, I mean, I think even the thing with Rousseau is Rousseau thinks you can move inward and discover the self, but he still believes there is there is such a thing as human nature, which mm-hmm. possesses a moral structure. Okay. Now, one can argue that that he couldn't hold that position plausibly, having really abandoned an orthodox Christian position. But he certainly thought there was such a thing as human nature. When the founders talk about, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, they clearly think that there's some kind of moral structure to the universe that is accessible to anybody who's willing to look fairly and objectively at it. So I would say, yes, the founders certainly assume a moral structure to the universe. Whether all of the founders grounded that in a solid foundation is a separate matter, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to uh, moving from the idea here and moving it into culture, when do you see uh, modern American culture beginning to shift? When does our conversation begin shifting when do our ideas about, um, you know, how we satisfy our desires, when does that begin to shift? Yeah, again, that's, you know, it's, it's a good question of when does it start. I, I would say that, well, the starting point, one could make the case that by including the, the statement pursuit of happiness in, in the Declaration, mm-hmm. uh, Jefferson sort of dangerously opened the door there to a rather amorphous concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, happiness is, is much more difficult to tie down than, than life, liberty, and let's say the possession of property right. would right. be. So one could certainly say that there, that there are seeds or, or foreshadowings of it right at the start. I think myself, really, you see this starting to to pick up in in the late 40s and then on into the 50s, when you get the big post-war consumer boom and the real rise of uh, of dramatic uh, American power on the world stage at that point. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that really does lead to... uh, a transformation in American society, some of which is good. I mean, I don't particularly want to go back and, and live through the Second World War or live <laughs> in the 19th century. Right, right. Uh, I, I, I want to stress that the story I tell is not one of inevitable decline, it's, it's just one of change. Sure. But I think the, the emergence of the affluent society in the 50s and then the, the traumas of Vietnam, the student rebellions, etc., of the 60s, uh, on into the 70s, I think these are the things that, that really shape the modern uh, 
American mentality in a profound way. Many people talk about you know how revolutionary this the change in sexual understanding has been. It's been a sexual revolution. It's people always talk about it as something in the '60s. They tie it to the pill, but as I read you, you see the roots of the sexual revolution going back far beyond beyond the before the '60s. Yes, uh, I think the, the identification of happiness with sexual satisfaction starts to, to gain traction in intellectual circles. Really, in the early part of the, the 20th century in Britain, we have the Bloomsbury Group, who really uh, sort of promoted that kind of thinking. Uh, and then you have the, the rise of, of characters such as Wilhelm Reich and Herbert Marcuse, who may have been German, but had a huge influence uh, in North America. So intellectually... The idea of, uh, of sexual license as, as, as cultural and political freedom is gaining traction among the intellectuals really in the early to mid-20th century. Then in the 1950s, I think you start to see a slow but steady transformation of uh, American sexual mores. Alan Patini's uh, wonderful book, the, the Permissive Society, really shows how the late 40s and the 50s uh, saw a, a transformation kind of under the surface of sexual practices and morality that really explodes in the 60s. And I think what happens at the end of the 60s, it's not simply that people are being promiscuous, it's that suddenly promiscuity starts to lose its, its social stigma. Promiscuity starts to become something that's approved of. The, the idea of the intellectuals that sexual license equals freedom begins to percolate to all levels of society at that point. Yeah, yeah and I, can, I remember very clearly when I was still in high school, um, cohabitation was still considered a marginal thing. Um, it happened, definitely happened. But it wasn't considered just a matter of course. Uh, now it's pretty much considered a matter of course. It's lo- largely lost its stigma, except in you know certain Catholic, uh, Catholic and evangelical communities. Even in mainline Protestantism, I think it's largely yeah, I mean, and, and it's often promoted as the best way to see if you're suitable for marriage. Yeah. Uh, it's not simply become an, an accepted aberration. It's become the kind of training ground for marriage, which is. You know, from a Protestant perspective, uh, and from a, even more from a Catholic perspective, is is a, a shocking, shocking development, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, why do you think the the Church has been um, ineffective? I know this is one of those large questions, but why do you think? Uh, the Catholic Church and evangelical, you know, Protestants that have a high view of Scripture, a high view of divine revelation, why do you think we've not been more effective in holding back the flow of this, uh, this sexual revolution? It's, that's a real tough one to answer. I think partly it's because the, the, the simple power of the culture is very strong. Yeah. I mean, churches typically get their people for a couple of hours a week at best, yeah. whereas they're yeah, you know, the internet, the television is preaching to people 24-7 if, if they wanted to. So I think there's that dimension. I also think there's been a loss of nerve on the part of the church. And obviously I can't comment so much on, on the Catholic church. I'm commenting from a Protestant perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the way Protestants so easily accepted no-fault divorce, for example, mm-hmm. and didn't hold their people to account for that, 
Partly because, of course, if you hold somebody to account for something, they'll up stumps and, and go to another church. <laughs> That's and you'll, true, yeah. you'll lose your constituency. I think the failure of the Protestant church to take its own teaching seriously uh, has, has had a, a very bad effect. And I imagine, I, I can't speak first-hand this, but I imagine you'll probably find an analogous thing has happened in, in the Catholic Church, where you know, for Protestants and Catholics there is paper orthodoxy. Right, but then right actual practice, and when those two things don't match up, it undermines institutional credibility and yeah. authority. Yeah, it's been amazing because uh, within Catholic circles, and I know that you are aware of this, uh, we had with John Paul II uh, a very uh, profound thinker uh, in this whole field of the theology of the body. And so in Catholic circles, we've probably had the, the fullest uh, um, rationalization of our uh, position on uh, the, the role of sex in human relations. And yet, uh, while some people have really benefited from John Paul II's teaching, the vast majority of Catholics remain unaware of it. Uh, hold, hold it, if you would, there, uh, Carl. We'll be back. Take a break. We'll come back. Looking at the rise and triumph of the modern self, my guest, Carl Truman. I'm Al Crestor. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Carl Truman, Grove City College, and author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl, I, something that's, I think has bothered uh, Christian thinkers for a while, and that is that the, the modern political project, you know, from the Enlightenment on, is, has been about the equal dignity of all human beings. And the question that arises is, well, sure, but Why? Why should we confer equal dignity on all human beings? From the Christian point of view, it's because uh, of our creation in the image and likeness of God. It's the redemption offered in Christ uh, that confers upon the human being dignity. What, what is the source of dignity in the modern political project which rejects the, the Christian metaphysic? I don't think there is one. I think we go back to that the, the Rousseau dilemma I mentioned earlier. That on the one hand, he, he he's in some ways I think he's great in, in in breaking through from the old sort of feudalism and saying no, all human beings have have an equal dignity. On the other hand, he has no sufficient ground for for resting that upon. And that, of course, is is the bluff that Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, right. calls in the nineteenth century. Nietzsche's the man who says, "Hang on a minute." If there is no God, then there is no metaphysical moral structure to the universe or human nature. Uh, and I'm, I'm dramatically simplifying and paraphrasing here, but essentially says we can now make it up as we go along. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think in some ways when you look at the, the culture in which we live at the moment, we're beginning to see the outworkings of Nietzsche's thinking in that now, yes, on the one hand, uh, our documents, our legal documents, etc., are uh, committed to the notion of, of the equal dignity of all human beings. But when you have politicians who bandy phrases like basket of deplorables, yeah. uh, and of course the right has its own liturgy that sure. it uses in a similar way, when you see the emergence of this new tribalism, I think you see how thin our commitment to universal human dignity is. And it's thin because the bottom line is society has no agreed metaphysics of humanity 
on which to build its its moral code, its moral culture. I mean, is is that one reason we've seen this rise of identity politics? So people are now uh, finding they're they're having to find some sense of identity within various uh, tribal groups, uh, ethnic groups, uh, racial groups, um, groups of a certain kind of sexual orientation. Uh, is that because they have nothing? Uh, because they actually don't have any any place else to ground yeah, the think, idea of self. Uh, I think intellectually, philosophically, that's certainly the case. I would also want to add to that that the, the breakdown of, of traditional uh, communities, nation, church, family, people want to belong, and so they will, they will join the groups that seem to offer a strong sense of belonging, yeah. and, and those are the groups that have built their identities not on a notion of universal human nature, but on something distinctive. Typically, I think, in the modern West, on victimhood. If you have a group that can claim to be weak and to be disempowered, to be marginal, uh, that is is a potent uh, context for strong group identity and very, very attractive in a world where victimhood is now given uh, virtue, considered virtuous almost simply because it's victimhood. Yeah, I mean this this concept of intersectionality, where you know you've got you can present yourself as victim in two three different ways. It's almost as though the more uh, merit badges you can collect for your victim status, the more moral standing uh, you have. We've even had people claiming to be uh, African American when in fact they, <laughs> they weren't African American at all. Um, the the absurdity of this though doesn't doesn't seem to we don't seem to be able to make make the point in any big way. Are we problem is I don't think we've done a very good job even teaching uh, the baptized here, uh, so that our local churches and our parishes don't often reflect the the profound teaching that we see in Scripture or in the histor- or in historic Christianity. What do you recommend to pastors and priests? Uh, to correct this problem. Yeah, it's, 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 I, I think you put your finger on it, and I think what we've had is, for many generations, I mean, I grew up in, in Britain and Europe, the situation was somewhat different. We, we secularized earlier and more slowly, I think, than in America. But for many generations in America, the, we might say that the basic moral values of society and the moral values of Christianity uh, coincided. And I think what that did was it made churches lazy. We, we didn't have to catechize our children, if you like, because society did that quite adequately at a moral level for us. Suddenly we find ourselves in a situation where, where no, the bluff has been called on that, uh, and we're in a a, a very difficult position. So I would say, you know, one of the things that pastors and priests need to do, to, to put it sort of bluntly, is they need to know what they believe, and they need to know why they believe it, and they need to teach that uh, consistently and carefully to to their congregation. Uh, it's not enough, I think, now to assume that people know what the Bible says, to assume that they know what the Church teaches, to assume even that they know what the basic Christian position on something like abortion right. or homosexuality is. I think those things have to be carefully, graciously, winsomely, but firmly taught yeah. uh, from the pulpit and uh, in catechism classes. No, I, I, I agree. Uh, you you have you uh, give a good deal of attention to a thinker that I I don't think is familiar to uh, 
many of us, and that's uh, Philip Reif in his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, which which was published, I think, in 1966. Yeah, and yeah. And still reads well today. Just elaborate a little bit on this man, what his insights were, and why they're important for us now. Well, Reif is a very interesting figure. Apart from anything else, he's not Christian. He's actually ethnically Jewish, or was ethnically Jewish. He died in 2006, and doesn't appear to have believed in God. Okay. Uh, but but seems to think that belief in God was vitally important for a healthy society. So he's an interesting figure from that perspective. But his basic uh, insight is it's really going back to what we were talking about at the start. He saw that the, the normative modern person was really what he described as a psychological person, that we tend to conceive of our happiness in terms of an inner sense of emotional, psychological well-being. And we, we regard society as, as needing to accommodate itself in order to satisfy that need. No longer, if you like, am I like my grandfather who got his job satisfaction from working a boring job but putting bread on the table for his family and shoes on their feet. I want a job that gives me intrinsic psychological satisfaction, mm-hmm. gives me a buzz when I teach the kids in class. Mm-hmm. And Reef saw the emergence of this psychological person, this person who really demanded that society, if you like, accommodate itself to that person in order to make them happy, rather than train that person to fit in with society as absolutely fundamental to the modern project. And he identified that in 1966, and it's, you mentioned the, the triumph of the therapeutic. Reading it today, it's eerie, because he couldn't possibly have known how accurate yeah. that book was going to be in, in 55 years' time. It, it's quite stunning. Um, I want to refer to a, a passage from the U.S. Supreme Court. It shows up in uh, Planned Parenthood, v casey and then shows up again i think in lawrence v texas and then in obergfell as well um it reads this way at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence of meaning of the universe and of the mystery of human life beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state so let me back up at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. That statement sounds as though the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't believe there are any shared objective moral truths or uh, metaphysical meaning. I mean, this sounds as though everybody's, uh, everybody is basically making it up as they go along, as individuals. Uh, yeah. Is, uh, does it read that badly to you as well? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I say to the students that just because uh, a sentence is utterly stupid and completely incoherent doesn't mean that it won't be said by an intelligent person, <laughs> right. believed by other intelligent people. That, of course, is Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, writing uh, the majority opinion in that. I mean, clearly the state has an absolute interest in defining personhood. That's why we send serial killers to prison. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the most arrant drivel one, one could ever have thought up, and yet it's there embedded in the reasoning of the Supreme Court. And really, not only is it very revealing of the culture that produced a man like Anthony Kennedy, it's now part of the legal culture that, that is referred to in, in other court opinions. 
It's stunning. Yeah. It's stunning in its incoherence. Yeah. Um, I guess as we get, move towards the close of this interview, uh, you're a church historian, and uh, what can you tell us about renewal, revival uh, within the Christ- within Christian communities over the ages? Uh, here we are; we're, we're facing a new cultural circumstance. Um, we've become a, a, a quote post-Christian society. Uh, which is a lot different than being a pagan society in which Christians are beginning the work of evangelization. Uh, we're now, we now have a society that uh, thinks they know what Christianity is. They think they know Christians. And um, it's very difficult for us to woo back somebody who we've already been divorced from. Um, should we begin thinking very differently about how we do the work of evangelism in community building? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is it's very easy to despair at points like this, but we do need to remember that the church is a supernatural thing. Amen. So ultimately, the battle is to the Lord. So, you know, it's appropriate that we reflect on our own thinking and behavior and have policies and strategies, but we must remember that the battle belongs to the Lord at the end of the day, and we know that he's going to win. So that should be a source for hope, even as we can be pessimistic, I think, about the immediate future. But secondly, yes, I do think we need to we need to rethink uh, how the, the church connects to wider society. And one of the ways to do that, I think, is to be a tight knit, faithful community in our local uh, our local areas. Uh, to be those that reflect the love of Christ practically in the way we relate to each other, that will be visible to those around us. So I think that you know the church has got 2000 years of, of careful doctrinal reflection behind it we got a lot of good theology what we need is to bear in mind those words of christ that by this shall all men know you my disciples by the love you have for each other so i think you're absolutely right uh, there has to be a strong practical community dimension to our thinking about evangelism in the future very good carl thanks great making your acquaintance and uh, i hope we get a chance to talk again in the future Love being on. Thanks for having me. Carl Truman, the book is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, we'll have it available, of course, in the online bookstore like we, we always do. But, uh, you know, our motto here at Ave Maria Radio has been build the church, bless the nations. And it's really because love is the final apologetic. Jesus gave the world the right to judge whether the Father sent the Son by the degree of observable love and unity they witness on the part of his disciples. And that love needs to be shown concretely within our own families, within our own church communities. And uh, we do that. Uh, we're doing about all we can do. I'm Al Cresta. <laughs>